You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi there, I'm your host, Curtis Finley, and this is the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast. And in this episode, we have another Generation X interview. This is our third interview of the series that's that's celebrating the 25th anniversary of Generation X. And this time, it is with letterer Richard Starkings. Richard Starkings, of course, is most known for his lettering work with Marvel and DC, uh, especially in the mid-90s when he kind of revolutionized the whole way that that comic lettering works by introducing computers, basically. Uh, And we go into great detail about that in this interview. Very interesting stuff. This is one of my oldest interviews. I actually did it two years ago, uh, back even before the Epic Marvel podcast existed. Because I was uh, I was starting early, planning for this 25th anniversary of Generation X, and collecting all of these interviews. And he was one of the first guys I talked to. Um, very, very interesting. Even if you have no interest in Generation X, this is such an, an eye-opening uh, interview to give you a glimpse at what it's like to be a comic letterer and that whole side of comics, which isn't usually talked about. Just before we get started, you can follow me on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Epic Marvel Podcast. You can search for my Epic Collection group on Facebook. And you can also donate a couple of bucks to patreon.com slash thunderquack to keep this podcast afloat and also support the other podcasts that are on the network. Um, And if you haven't checked out the other Generation X interviews already, I encourage you to do so. We talked to writers Scott Lubdell and Jay Ferber. And both of those are great interviews as well. So head over to epicmarvelpodcast.com and search through my back history or use the little index tag that's at the top and, uh, and look for those interviews. So enough about me. Here is Richard Starkings. So you started working in the comic industry over in the UK first. What were your jobs there? Were you Did you start right off the bat as a letterer, or is that something you kind of fell into? There was an article in a magazine called Warrior, which was a British anthology launched by Dez Skin, D-E-Z-S-K-I-N-N. And um, there was an article saying that the easiest way to get into comics was lettering. And, uh, you know, my goal was to get into comics but I also knew that I was quite a good lettering artist and I'd done some uh, newspaper style strips and lettered them myself and that was something that was actually kind of interesting to me. So I submitted samples to Warrior and some other uh, publications in England and that led to me getting a job at lettering Transformers for Marvel UK and that led me to getting on staff at Marvel UK uh, doing graphic design and paste up back in the day when you actually had to glue things together. Oh, to right. make- and did that open doors to Marvel in the U.S.? 
Yes, it did, because halfway through my time there, Tom DeFalco was stationed with us. He was spent a month or two months with us, apparently because he and Jim Shooter had been um, clashing. And Tom was a very avuncular, helpful, friendly editor, you know, and mm -hmm. um, he sort of took us under his wing and sort of opened up the channels between Marvel UK and Marvel US. I went to visit in 1987. Uh, I went to San Diego Comic Con in 1988. And by the time I moved to New York in 1989, I knew a lot of editors there and started picking up work. And uh, one of the first work that you were doing in, in Marvel America was uh, Sleepwalker? Yes, that was one of the first ones. I was working for editor Don Daly. I did... I did a Conan for him. I did some backup stories, Tales of Asgard, which Tom DeFalco wrote and Mike Mignola drew. And, I, and Rob Tokar was Don's assistant editor. And later for him, I did Transformers Next Generation. Um, but Don's, the, the first regular book Don gave to me was Sleepwalker. And that was the early 90s, right? 89, 90, yes. Oh, okay. And um, at, at that point, were you still, were you starting to think about going digital at that point? I believe at that time, I had seen issues of Namor lettered with a computer by John Byrne. I know that I spoke to John Byrne in, I think, 1991 at San Diego Comic Con. It might have been 1990. And that, to me, was a sign that comics were going to head in the digital direction. And so I saw John Byrne in the lobby of the Westgate Hotel in San Diego, and I went up to him and said, how are you doing that? He told me he was using some software called, I think, Fantastic or, yeah, Fantastic, And um, that had been supplanted by a program called Fontographer, which I acquired and started learning. I had friends in California who'd worked at Marvel in New York, Mark Siri, and um, ha he was living in a house with a bunch of guys who were into computers. One guy worked at Rand Corporation, which is a sort of uh, super secret establishment out here in California, and my friend who worked for Rand helped me learn Fontographer and Illustrator, which ultimately became the tools with which we lettered comics in the early 90s. Wow. So then what inspired you to found your own company? Well, I had worked not only for Marvel UK, I'd worked for 2000 AD. I had worked for Graffiti Designs, which was a company based out here in um, California. They're based in Anaheim at the time. And um, I learned how to use a Macintosh computer. I was comfortable with the idea of working with a studio. Um, I had been an editor-in-chief at Marvel UK. I was in charge of all the boys' adventure titles. So I had, uh, in my office, I had three people working with me and another five in other offices. So I was familiar with working with a pool of people in order to produce a product. And I'd also read uh, a book about um, Hergé, who's the creator of the Belgian comic book character Tintin. Yep. And what I really wanted to do was make my own comics. So what I wanted to do was what Hergé had done. He did graphic design and advertising work, and his studio produced 
all that work, and he used the money to fund Tintin. Nice. So I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to own my own comic book. I want to create my own comic book. So I'll create a studio of people that do graphic design and lettering, just like Hergé did, and generate a stream of income so that I could spend time developing my own comic book. And is that comic book your Elephant Man comic? Yes, it is. Elephant Man. Wonderful. We're in our 10th year at Image Comics, yes. That's amazing. That's great. Um, So tell me a little bit about bringing comic craft to Marvel. Well, it was more a matter of I was doing a lot of work for Marvel. I was continuing to work for Don Daly and Rob Tokar and my friend Greg Wright, who was the editor of a bunch of books. And they were putting work my way. And and the one that a lot of people talk about is uh, Wolverine Punisher, which was drawn, I believe, by Gary Erskine. And um, we used one of our first fonts on that book, and it was way too big. I didn't realize until it was published. A lot of people in editorial mocked it. But we used that as a way of adapting and making it better, making it smaller. We did a bunch of anthology stories for a book. I think it was called Marvel. I want to say it was called Marvel Comics Presents, edited by... Rob Tokar. No, it wasn't Marvel Comics Presents. Maybe Marvel Universe, but um, they were short stories, and we continued to letter them with digital fonts, and and nobody really paid attention because editorial wasn't as proud of that those books. Okay, and, you know, so we were able working with some very supportive editors like Greg and Rob. We refined our font, and Kurt Busiek was a, a big fan of the Macintosh computer and very open to the idea of computer lettering and he wanted us on Marvels so during the course of the four issue Marvel series illustrated by Alex Ross Mm -hmm. we refined the font at this point I had been working with John Rochelle who's been working with me now 25 years and um, he kept refining the font based on pen lettering that I was still doing at the time. I was still lettering comic books on the board and he would scan my lettering and, and scan them into fontographer and, and, and make a font as close to my pen lettering as he could. And he always felt that the third issue of Marvel's was the one where he got it right. Oh, okay. So if you look at Marvel's, it's kind of a, it shows the evolution of uh, our first font uh, which is based on my pen lettering. And then Bob Harris, who was the editor of the X-Men titles, told me never to use computer fonts on X-Men books <laughs> uh, because we snuck in a couple of pages at the end of an issue of X-Factor and he saw them and he said no. But um, I was going away on holiday one year and uh, we were finishing the Gambit miniseries. So I had John Rochelle lettered a page digitally and in order to convince Bob that that it would look okay uh, we printed out the computer lettering and I traced it on a sheet of vellum so that it would look almost identical so the trick was John lettered it digitally first and then I copied the digital lettering okay so and, and then I presented it to them as if it was the other way around right and that works with Bob Harris on the X-Men, and Julie Rottenberg and Stuart Moore at Vertigo Comics. I did the same <laughs> trick. 
What was their apprehension to using digital? This is the early 90s. Yeah. People didn't even use the word font. <laughs> right. They, they talked about pen lettering and they, they talked about hand lettering as if we were dipping our bloody stumps of fingers in, in ink. <laughs> but somehow it was better or more human. And it wasn't, of course. It was an archaic system that needed to be replaced. Right. So um, there was a lot of resistance. And I would say that the resistance was general technophobia. In the early 90s, very few people were using email. Yeah. And it wasn't until the late 90s that it became uh, the way people did business. So, you know, we went from working whereby they would send the artwork to us and we would print out digital lettering on sticky backed paper called crack and peel or crack back. Yeah. And we would cut the, paper, the, the, the sticky back paper out and, and paste them onto the artboards. Oh, okay. And FedEx them back. So the amount that Marvel and DC used to spend on FedEx was phenomenal. Yeah, no kidding. And and that that is a thing of the past. People do not FedEx anymore. Right. And, and we were trying to convince Marvel and DC to work digitally and, and that we'd email files that could be married together electronically you know and it took us the entire 90s from the from the day i first did digital lettering printed it out pasted it up on the boards to you know that was the early 90s and by by 1999 2000 marvel had gone completely to digital paste up now when you say digital paste up does that mean printing it out on the sticky back paper and cutting it out still no, that's that's physical paste up. Digital, okay. digital. The lettering never touches the art. It's all married together in either Quark Express or um, Adobe in InDesign, which didn't exist right. really in the mid nineties. So you have a digital copy of of the file, the artwork as well. Yes. Okay, got it. And and we were the ones that pushed and pushed and pushed for that. And of course, you know, the the moment we convinced Marvel and DC to work digitally was when the floodgates opened and they wanted to eliminate our contribution. They wanted to get lettering in-house. But of course, you always need somebody, an individual to do that work. And yeah. you always need somebody who's passionate about the work rather than uh, somebody who you hire, give them a space in an office and say, do this work. You know, okay. so, you know, there was a point at which in the, the beginning of 2000, 2001, they were trying to reduce the cost of coloring, lettering, you name it. They were trying to reduce prices because, you know, after 9-11, the U.S. economy was sort of in a little bit of turmoil. Mm -hmm. And um, not only that, but video games were taking off in a big way. Manga was taking off in a big way. And it, it looked like Marvel and DC Comics were in, in trouble. So, of course, you always try and lower the cost at the low end you always it's always the big name actors that get 20 million and the, right. uh, the supporting actors get 50,000 you know so yeah that was definitely happening in the the world of comics too um so generation x was um an opportunity for you according to this generation x preview it was one of the first marvel books to go fully digital yeah i think it was i think we were working then, Electric Crayon was in the next studio, you know, and, and if, if you look at those pictures of Steve Busilado and me, 
we took each other's picture. <laughs> Pine pipes. Yes, on the roof yeah. of the building that we were renting space in at the time. Ah. So it was definitely being in the same studio with Electric Crayon meant that we could talk about doing digital paste up. And at the time, who would do it? Who would get paid for it? What would they get? What would they charge? There was all these other issues, which of course, digital paste up, nobody really gets paid for it. You know, it, it's another area where, especially when we work with independent clients, I have to explain to them that, that put it, marrying the color files and the lettering files together is another discipline. You know, you need to hire somebody to do it or you need to pay us to do it. Right. You know, we used to get paid for doing pay stuff, even if it was 50 cents or $2 a page. It, it, it's another job. If you're lettering on the artwork, you're using ink directly onto artwork. If you're having to print it out on, put it on vellum or print it out, then you need to be paid to do that extra job. I think... Electric Crayon did the digital paste up. You'd have to ask Steve Busolato if that's the case. But, you know, it, it meant that our lettering was being, there was no bit mapping on our lettering. Okay. It meant that even though the artwork was scanned and might look a little rough, because when you scan artwork, the artwork is then a second generation copy. Right. But the lettering, when it's done digitally, when it's printed in a comic book, it's first generation. Right. So uh, Steve Lealoa, who is an artist in his own right um, and an inker, said to me, how come your lettering is sharper than my... <laughs> it looks so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest compliments because he was recognizing that digital lettering had a degree of finesse that scanning couldn't provide. Yeah. Nowadays, a lot of artists work digitally... So when it's printed, it's first generation. There's no bit mapping. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The brush line, when it's printed, is as if the brush has touched the paper. There's, there's no pho photography. There's no scanning. It, it, it exists digitally. Right. So Bob didn't want any digital on X-Men, but he finally relented. He relented, and ultimately there was a point at which we... We were lettering 16 X-Men books a month. Oh, wow. So tell me, what is, the, uh, what is the time difference between doing one page, ordinary hand paste up versus do, doing it all digitally? Well, hand paste up is extremely laborious and can take half an hour to an hour. Uh, digital paste up, 30 seconds. That's amazing. So how long would you spend lettering and, uh, and doing everything you need to do for one issue the old way versus the digital way? Well, you know, you're falling into the trap of time and numbers. Okay. And, you know, my friend Tim Sale, who's, uh, you know, a renowned comic book artist, mm -hmm. when people ask him how long he, he spends on a page, he says, 59 years, <laughs> six, six months, five weeks, and 12 days. And, and then he looks at his watch and says, and two hours. <laughs> because... Good lettering isn't a matter of speed. Right. Good lettering is sensitivity, creativity, understanding how your work looks on different artists, knowing the deadline and meeting it, but, and yet maintaining high quality in a short amount of time. And that's why I got into digital lettering, because whenever 
costs are being crunched. It's always, can we get it faster? Can we get it cheaper? Right. And uh, in the 90s, we often got paid ridiculous amounts of money, double page rate or high page rates because people wanted things fast and they wanted our quality. So we were, and X-Men books were always notoriously late and Bob started realizing that we were doing great work in half a day, you know, because I had a studio. I had more than, it, w it wasn't just me. There was two or three people working for me. So we could do a book in a day. Right. And, and when I'm saying a day, I don't mean 24 hours. I mean four hours. Wow. That's pretty good. So, you know, what used to take me working individually on 22 pages would easily take me two working days. We could do that in three or four hours and often did. And so you became highly sought after. Yes. And because I was art directing, I wasn't letting anything go by that, that I wasn't happy with. There was a consistency to the work. And a lot of writers said, do you do everything individually? You know, how many hours do you work? And that, that's the thing is that when people start saying to you, how do you do it? How many people? How many pages? How long does it take you? You've won. Because they're trying to figure out with their left brains what I figured out with my right brain. Right. Which is, how can I be more creative and meet the deadlines? And what each writer that would contact me would say, I want you working on it. And I would say, I work on every book. You know, and, mm -hmm. and that, that didn't mean other people didn't work on every book. But I was training them to do the work the way I would do it. And bring their own creativity. I was always open to other people's creativity. And Generation X is a great example of... I loved working with on Chris Bocello's work. John Rochelle was, had been working for me about two years, three years at this point, and I was pushing him and you know trying to inspire him to do different style title pages. I came up with the little sort of button for, for footnotes and yep. sort of and, and I was trying to and, and the, the, there was a little sort of um, generation X created by and I and I imitated the Intel inside little circle. Yeah. Yep. Because I wanted it I wanted to say this is a digital book. This is a digital experience. Because Generation X was about young people. And, you know, I was a lot younger at the time. But you know, that's the thing is to say what what is what is significant about this book? It's about young people. What are young people doing right now? They're pressing buttons on computers. They are familiar with the Intel Inside logo. They are familiar with the idea that, that this is not a comic book from 1965. And it really comes across. Um, a lot of the, just the, the treatment of it, especially your, your issue titles and that kind of stuff, you really play. And uh, it's a lot more fancy, I guess, and more playful than any other, especially the X books that you'd see. Well, uh, JG and I were very inspired by... Um, we, we actually brought what I call uh, retro techno. We, we would, I, I always think that, you know, uh, Hither Comes the Sugar Man was, I said, JG, make this look like an old biscuit tin from England. <laughs> because there was something slightly Dickensian about the way Chris Picello drew. Everybody had like red noses. Yep. You know, they, they had shiny red noses and there was something Oliver Twist about the way he drew characters. Right. And even though you had Jubilee running around in a bright yellow raincoat and um, chamber with a mouthful of fire, it, it was sort of like it was, it was like New Mutants, but it was it was seen through a different 
lens artistically, and especially when they did the Generation Next crossover, which was very, it was slightly steampunk. It was. Which is ironic because Chris Cello went on to do steampunk. Right. So I came up with the Generation X logo as a very sort of clunky, almost steampunk logo. And I used this sort of Intel inside behind the X so that it was modern and old fashioned at the same time. Do you know what I mean? That yep. there, was, there was something very modern and dated about Chris's artwork. And the stories that Scott Lobdell were writing, was writing was a little bit different. And there was a fantasy element that came on a little bit later that we sort of played up to. And um, I don't know if you've seen the little, I think it was an eight-page prologue that was given away at San Diego that year. Yep, where they're uh, playing volleyball. Yeah, and um, Jubilee is narrating at that. And, and I, I, I designed a very unique scroll caption. And the handwriting was based on John Rochelle's wife's handwriting, Starshine. You know, so there was, we were always trying to bring in more human looking, a, a human touch, because the contradiction was that we were using digital fonts. Yeah. But our goal was to make them look much more personal. So that the irony is, with the freedom of digital comic book lettering, we were able to make it look even more personal and perhaps uh, more uh, handmade. Nice. Chamber has a really unique bubble that he uh, speaks with because he, he speaks because he doesn't have a mouth. Yes. Um, how did you come up with uh, that look? How did you decide to to treat Chamber's speech like that? You know, I've got to give some credit to Scott Lobdell, who, you know, he sort of responded very well to the idea that we were going to work digitally. And I, I think you're responding to the fact that he, he basically he's just telepathic the whole time. Right. Right. Yeah. So there was this old style of telepathic balloons that had little whiskers on them. And I always questioned old standards because what used to happen was if you were whispering, you had a broken line around your balloon. If you were telepathic, you had little whiskers on it. Yeah. They were habits, really. They were shortcuts. They were easy to do for, for a pen letterer. But a digital letter can produce one balloon and then duplicate it time and time and time again without much effort. Right. So I wanted something different for telepathic. So we had these sort of little, um, I call it a little heartbeat motif on the corner of each balloon. Okay. And that became our standard for telepathic balloons. You know, we, we were able to do a lot of new things in Generation X and a lot of other books simply because it's like, okay, when people are whispering, let's have grayed out balloons because, you know, if it's hard to read, then it's hard to hear. <laughs> right. Yeah, that makes you sense. Yep. So I tried to apply a bit of logic and the same logic that I applied to um, the, uh, the footnote caption. Okay. Or the regular captions, which had the font based on the logo. Right. And I, I, I did little things which letterers have been doing for years and years. Artie Simic in the 60s was doing drop caps. I used drop caps in Generation X. But in, in a way, Generation X, that first couple of years, was our Bible of this is how we want to do comics. And because it was people were talking about it, because people sort of saw that I wasn't just doing what everybody done for 30, 40 years, other writers would say, how do I get you on my book? Nice. And we, would, we were doing cover lettering. We were doing 
logo design. We were doing elaborate title pages. And pretty soon, within that next three, four-year period, we were doing all the X-Men books, as I said, because Generation X was like our flagship book. You know, there was an issue where there was a sort of um, – it was a Stan Lee. Stan Lee was in the issue or – yep. You know, and there was a circus, and we went overboard on the cover. We did <laughs> little logos for, I think, uh, a werewolf and the mummy. Yeah. And, this is issue 17. Yeah. Right. And then we had, um, I, I think that's the one where we had a circus poster type. Yeah. Look. I'm trying to remember other ones. But um, because I had, at that point, four or five people working for me, John and I could be working for a day on a title page. Wow, and not a, not many other letters at the time could spend that much time on title lettering, yeah, or or cover lettering, or do logos as well. And I do remember there was one issue um, where they were playing Scrabble, mm -hmm. and I was putting the actual Scrabble points on the tile. <laughs> yeah, that's that level of detail. Not much many people notice. Bob Harris said you can't do that because it's a copyright. Oh no. <laughs> Maybe it's Hasbro or something will come after them. So, but you know, we were trying very much. You know, there was an issue I think with Howard the Duck where I recreated the Howard the Duck logo on the page that he appeared, and this was a thing that both Scott, I think that was a Chris Pacello issue, and both Scott and Chris were saying were leaving me space. They knew that if if, if there was a lot of space on the page, that I would be happy to fill it. Yeah, yeah. I'm just checking. I think that's issue 20. I'm just going to open it up here and have a look. And that was a huge surprise that Howard the Duck was in in an issue. You know, that this yeah, was he hadn't been seen for a while. Not for a long time. And you know, there was all there was a lot of issues about who owned Howard the Duck, and nobody liked it. <laughs> you know. So, were you also in charge of um, like the letters page, setting up the fonts and, and titles in in that one as well? I don't. I don't think so. I think we did. We did those gatefold um, designs. You know, when there used to be a story so far catch up. Right. Yep. I can't remember. It's so long ago. <laughs> I can't remember if we did letters pages, but I do know that there was a point where we were doing insane amounts of d design work because we did gatefolds on every single Marvel book for months. Yeah, that was that was probably pretty intensive. And so if, if you get the the text for all of those write-ups, did you get were you allowed to like edit it so you could make it fit or did you have to make whatever was written fit? A, a bit of both. Okay. Yeah, I, Bob Harris was very trusting. And in fact, we used to put the indicia on the page but i was doing crazy things like putting it in the on the side of a closet at an, <laughs> yeah. ang at an angle and um bob said to me oh legal won't let us do that you, you know we're just going to slap it on in a box so oh. don't don't get clever <laughs> that's too bad but again it was it was because people were afraid of computers they didn't know about what we were doing so they gave us a lot more freedom i mean it's much more restrictive these days. We get told what fonts to use. We, we don't have the kind of, I, I would say Gener Generation X, especially the first 20, 30 issues, we had crazy amounts of freedom and creative involvement. And um, once other people started working digitally and then once you got art directors involved who wanted more control and 
being able to buy fonts gives the illusion of control to art directors. And the thing was, as an art director myself in the Comic Craft Studio, I encouraged experimentation. I encouraged new things. But, you know, if you're the art director at Marvel or DC, you, you want things to be easier. You don't, Being experimental makes things more difficult. Right. So it's very rare that you get a situation where you're encouraged to be um, experimental. And we were able to do that because there was a lot of ignorance of computers, software, fonts. So we were sort of making up the rules as we went along. And, you know, Marvel and DC work the way that we choose to work. We set the template for all digital letterers for the last 30 years. Yeah. You know, because, because of our choices, you know. So, um, and, you know, a lot of people these days buy our fonts at comicbookfonts.com. We've got over 300 font families. And, you know, if you chose to, you could buy all the fonts that you've seen in Generation X and try your hand at it. But the difference is, how creative are you going to be when you're following in our footsteps? What I liked about Generation X, we were in at number one. Yep. And we could make new rules, whereas previously we'd been lettering, we'd picked up books like Spider-Man, uh, Superboy we were working on, books that already had a, a look. Generation X was an area where we could choose how it looked. And, and you know, a footnote to that is that we had previously worked with Chris Pacello on Ghost Rider 2099. Okay. And John Rochelle had worked on that book, and he designed the logo, and he designed a specific balloon for Ghost Rider 2099 that looked oh, like... Yeah. like digital. Yeah, sort of, yeah. yeah. So, so, so the seeds of Generation X were sown in Ghost Rider 2099, and in a way, John made that his book, and then I felt competitive, and I made Generation X my book, <laughs> working with with JG, who, who was really starting to get very confident as a lettering artist. And um, b between it, those two books really cemented the unique look that we were able to create. Who created the Generation X logo, the first one? The very first one was Todd Klein. Todd Klein. Yeah. And then you did the, the uh, later one that came apart after, like issue six or seven? No disrespect to Todd, I thought that the first Generation X logo was uh, illegible. It um, was because it's tall and skinny. It was a little hard to read. Yes, and and what I did to make it legible was we used um, smaller e's, smaller vowels, because the great thing about Generation X it's uh, consonant vowel, consonant vowel, consonant oh, vowel, yeah. consonant vowel, vowel, consonant X. Right. So if you look at it, I made. E E A I O small yeah and G N R T N X big right so it, it gives the eye some space to breathe mm -hmm. plus I had this whole look that I wanted in the book right you have the Intel inside circle yeah. in the logo yeah. now yeah so I actually petitioned Bob to drop the lo the logo they launched with which of course was prepared long before we got hired right but that logo actually ended up on the tv movie that fox made i think right but but i really think that we successfully branded generation x and we were putting together the covers at the time uh, later on so you'll see that on the first few issues 
the cut the logo isn't stretched and it's easier to read mm-hmm. on later issues they started stretching it and it 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 tormented me right i think the last cover we put together was for the 25th issue and i consciously went back to the shorter logo which i find more legible okay yeah but you know when when a when a book is not your own these are the decisions that are made by other people yeah and they're not thinking about the elements that you may be thinking about and that, that doesn't make them right or wrong although usually we're right did your focus and your style change when the creative team changed a, a little bit you know i think steve siegel came on in the late 20s or yeah. thereabouts and also we weren't as involved in the uh, digital paste up as we'd been so there was a title page that I loved, which was Some Things Hurt More Than Chocolate and Boys. <laughs> yeah. And the digital paste up was done at Marvel in New York, and they didn't see this little aeroplane that Chris had drawn in, so it wasn't cut behind the way I would have liked it to be. And increasingly, Generation X was launched as this super special, high-quality printing, high-quality coloring, yep. scotastic screening, and it ended up another book on pulp paper. It did, yeah. So Marvel sort of benefited from the launch was like something like 400,000 copies or something crazy at the time. And as it went on and and as it became less special and you got fill-in issues by artists that didn't seem to me to be quite as well suited no. as Chris. <laughs> um, yeah, very true. Yeah, and it just it became another Marvel book and it was a victim of you know, intense deadlines, you know, and then later on, I think after issue 50, they wanted a redesign of the logos. And I don't, I, I'm not sure whether we did some logo designs or Todd did some new logo designs or somebody else. You're talking about when it was rebranded Counter X? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. And everything that made it special and unique for me got lost. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it, the mistake I think that is made is, hey, you know, everything's grungy. We want grungy fonts. And it's like, no, this is a comic book. This is not grunge. <laughs> these are not comics being produced by, you know, potheads in Seattle. That, I always feel there has to be a certain look to X-Men and superhero comics. And I want to say that JG did, did the Counter-X logo. I, I can't remember if I did it, but, you know, there, there was this direction of grunge. Yeah. And I get it, but it made it look ordinary to me. It was quite a, um, a, a very different direction for sure, a little jarring for people who were used to uh, what, what had come before. Yeah. And, and you know, it's always better to, to do that on something else. You know, if you launch something with a grungy look, it's very different than, you know, you look back on 90s comics and you go like, what the hell were they thinking? <laughs> And maybe to some people, the, the original Generation X logo looks dated or of its time, you know, 90s. But, but to me, I look at the Counter X logos and, and I'm looking at them right now. And I just, it, it just looks what it is, which is a inappropriate mashing of comic books and grunge type. They, they might work on a image book that was designed during the grunge period, 
but it does it doesn't not, it doesn't work for me on generation x right and they and they purposely picked anchors that were a lot grungier as well who were co- quite darker and yeah and it, yeah they were definitely going for this whole uh vibe that uh ultimately didn't pay off for them and that was across the board like all of those counter x titles yeah were, were given that yeah um in the let me see here generation x the 96 annual has sort of a 3d title on it or i guess 95 and 96 both of those annuals have this 3d yeah. title did you create that that as well yes we had a couple of designers who were working with the 3d program and we were being asked to make things look uh, I, I think it's another mistake personally we were we were being asked to make things look slicker and shinier um and 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 you know the sort of resistance to to computers was diminishing and I, we did another one for um x-force whereby we did a like a gold logo and um there was a degree of make this look even more like video games you know because that's the other thing is you got all these video games with three-dimensional logos and yeah. slick coloring and you had a lot of young editors and assistant editors who wanted it to look like the stuff they grew up with? You know, they they weren't going home and reading comics. They were going home and playing video games. Right. Hmm. Um, there is one um, the the Generation X spinoff called Daydreamers. You also had a hand in that. It's got a great logo. I really like just the uh, the fancy um, the fancy font that that's on the front as the logo. Yeah. JG did that. I'm pretty certain. Yeah, JG did that logo. Yeah, yeah it's really nice. Um, as well as just inside the, the treatment of that book, um, as far as like the even the, the sound effects and such, it just has an air of uh, fancy fairy tale kind of quality to it. Yeah, and it was spun off a storyline in Generation X, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it, and and that I think though was a mistake because they were, you know, when Fantastic Four came out. Marvel was only allowed eight slots on the newsstand. So when they had a new character like Silver Surfer or Black Bolt and the Inhumans and all, you know, the Frightful Four, they had to keep those characters in Fantastic Four because they couldn't get another spot on the newsstand. Right. So the first hundred issues of Fantastic Four are just full of ideas. Mm -hmm. The problem at Marvel at the time was like, we need more comics. We need to make more money. (laughs) You know, so Scott Lobdell would say, well, let's do a Daydreamers comic or let's do a Chamber comic or let's do Jubilee or whatever. So what what happens is the soap opera storylines aren't contained within the main title. Right. And you end up with situations where, right, well, you can't do anything to Chamber. He's got his own comic or you can't do anything to Daydreamers because it's happening over there. You start to dilute the source and the stream runs thinner. So... You know, we were in that ironic situation of give us more work. We can handle more work. We can do 16 X-Men books a month. (laughs) But, you know, ultimately you get you spreading your ideas thinner and thinner and thinner. And I think Scott and Chris really worked closely and well together um, on that first year, two years. But ultimately your product, you're a McDonald's turning out burgers. Yeah. And you have to turn out more and more. And, you know, you need a. You need to supersize it. 
Okay, I just got um, two more questions for you. Uh, we've been talking sure. for about an hour now, so I'm gonna not, I don't want to take all your time. Um, there is a Generation X Gen 13 crossover, and you did the letters for that. Um, it was yeah. translated to uh, 3D as well. There was a 3D version of it. Um, did you have any part in that, or was that specifically Ray Zone, the guy who did the 3D? Yeah, that would be Ray Zone. I mean, you know, that's that's a whole other thing. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, last question. Brian Michael Bendis, his books have such a unique way of placing his uh, all of his balloons all over the place. Have you done any work for for him in his his unique style of writing? Yes, we did all his work at Todd McFarlane Productions. We did the New Avengers for fifty issues or something. Um, we did a lot of his Daredevil. Yeah. So do you um, do you come up with the way that all of the, his words are laid out? His script is laid out on the page, or does he did he have a lot of input in that? Well, you know, Brian's not only a talented writer, but he's an artist, and he's lettered his own work in the past, and and it's I think it's very much part of his signature style. So he had very strict panel layouts, and I would say actually that that he's so particular that. It's difficult to change the layout when there's 16 to 20 panels on a page in some cases. Right. There's pretty much only one place a balloon is going to go when panels are small. Yeah. And he has a very understated style. There's not a lot of hyperbole. There's not a lot of special effects. It's really the dialogue. So you respond to the writer. You know, if the writer's saying... Give this guy his own balloon. Let's have circus-style lettering. Let's have a big title page. Then you respond to that. If if a writer is saying no sound effects, not much emphasis on words, then the rhythm of that is is in the script. You don't need to play with the way it's uh, lettered because it's a different style. It's more like a TV show. Right. And and I would say that that's Brian's forte, is making something dialogue heavy. Well, I would just want to thank you, Richard, for um, being on the show and talking to us for about an hour here. Um, I think a lot of people don't get the opportunity to hear from letterers, and uh, this is an amazing insight into comic book creating in general. It's really fascinating. So thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. You're welcome, and uh, please encourage all your listeners to buy Elephant Men, which is not only yep. lettered by my good self, but written Wonderful. and created. Yes, we'll definitely be checking that one out. Thanks, Richard. Appreciate Thanks, it. Kevin.